special thanks to our promotional partners at the American Philatelic Society. The APS is the largest stamp collecting organization in the world, supporting collectors of any level worldwide. For more information about membership and APS services, visit stamps.org. I'm Charles Epting from H.R. Harmer in New York City. And I'm Michael Cortese of Noble Spirit in Pittsfield, New Hampshire. And this is Conversations with Philatelists. Now, Michael, you've been particularly excited about who we're talking to today. This is one that, in our group chat that we have going, this is one that you've been really, uh, really uh, jazzed about. And and why don't you tell people who we're going to be speaking with today? Yeah, well, I find it really interesting. Today we're talking to Daisy Todd of the Stamp Restorer. So she restores... Uh, philatelic and and, and conserves, and, conserves, and I, I, yes. I think she'll go into all you know exactly what it is she does because I don't want to give people the wrong impression that she's right. um, turning a, a cheap cover into a million dollar cover. Right. Well, that, I mean, that's kind of why I was so excited to to talk to her is because it is this gray area in philately where people aren't so sure what to think because you get a you get a certificate that says it's it's been repaired and people think oh well you know this is awful or something but but right. it's, you know i think it's i think it's a lack of information i think yes. people don't know enough to have a fully formed opinion about what restoration versus conservation mm-hmm. means yeah. um and i i think this i think we're both going to learn a lot because you know, this is something that neither of us have a, a lot of experience any experience, any experience. In. So <laughs> yeah. I, you know, this, this is a facet of the hobby that that really is is new for us and, and presumably new for a lot of people Right. Listen, you know, I, I know, uh, I know Daisy's father very well. He's a, an extremely accomplished philatelist, but I've never, never met her, never spoken to her. This is, this is all new for, for I, us. Yeah. It, um, so I'm here to learn too. In addition to the questions I'll be asking, I'll be listening to the answer. Absolutely. I, I, I think this, <laughs> no, I, I was going to, yeah, I, I think we're both going to get a lot out of this one. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's bring her in. All right. Well, here we go. Hi, thank you so much for joining us. Hi there. Hi, how are you? Good, good. Um, so it, we've seen a lot about your your work online, the uh, the kind of stuff you do. How has it been going during the the quarantine and everything like that? Or, or... Um, well, I mean, it's actually it's an incredibly easy job to do from home because I have a conservation studio at home. So there's been a lot of collectors that have gone through um, that have gone through their collections. Uh, since obviously being quarantined so actually I've been getting a lot of work through the door which has been quite nice Um, and it's also been quite nice because I haven't had to juggle it um, with my work at the British Library so um, if anything it's actually been a a good year for me. (laughs) (laughs) I think the first question a lot of people would have um, is there's obviously a huge difference between doctoring something and restoring something with the intent to deceive and restoring something with the intent to preserve and you know there's very legitimate honest reasons to want to um you know have something worked on can you talk a little bit about that um dichotomy between um you know maybe people doing it for nefarious reasons or doing it for completely legitimate reasons yeah no this uh this obviously is one of the biggest hurdles in philatelic conservation because um you know, obviously, conservation is still massively frowned upon uh, because it's often incredibly misunderstood. Um, and uh, you know, obviously, the the uh, the profession is is a lot of word of mouth and a lot of you know, it's obviously very discussion based. And 
there were like art, like art conservation, archive conservation, every other form of conservation, you know, um, any sort of material, you're allowed to conserve it. And, you know, obviously we work under a lot of guidelines and ethics and uh, we obviously have to be incredibly highly qualified to do what we do. And, um, uh, yeah, so for, 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 for Philatelist to say that it isn't good enough is, uh, was one of the main hurdles when I started in this. But, you know, as, um, as with... You know, with with any with any paper items, um, uh, um, they get damaged. So there's a lot of maps. You know, that have corners come off. Or, you know, a lot of philatelic items are very badly stored, and uh, so to repair them is 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 justifiable. Um, but the main guidelines that that I work under, well, that we all work under, all conservators, um, and they're they're in every country. The American Institute of Conservation, ICON, which is the Institute of Conservation in England. Um, uh, it's basically that you don't restore something back to making it look shiny and new and deceptive. So you, you conserve something back to its stabilised state. So if obviously if a, an envelope has a massive tear through it, you repair it and you do a nice job of repairing it, obviously, and you make it very subtle. Um, and, you know, no repair is invisible. Um, every repair is visible under magnification because of the way that tears are. You know, you can't fully reverse um, damage. Um, so all damage is still visible no matter if it's been repaired. So it's never deceptive. It's always visible. Um, but obviously it improves the aesthetic of the item and it improves the long-term stability of it and um yeah I mean there's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot there's, I get a lot of requests from suspect uh, <laughs> dealers and things that you know want me to re-perforate and re-gum and and all this and I you know I don't do that I mean I repair perforations you know if a perforation is torn or you know if a stamp block is uh, you know it's come apart um, then I'll repair it but um again obviously the repairs are visible but I never re-gum and I never re-perforate and uh you know I, I just don't take the work up I just say I can't you know I don't do mm -hmm. that it's you know it's very clear from the start the, the limits really do you do you sign your your every piece that you repair or give like a certificate saying this has been repaired? Yeah, I mean, this is treated with skepticism, I and mean, this is very customary in the conservation world. Is that we write a treatment report about everything that we do. Mm -hmm. So um, you know, obviously, this initial analysis, so all the all the um, um, all the initial documentation. Of, um, of the condition it's in or the photography and then so that's all documented and then all the treatment that you carry out on it and photographs of it after treatment and these condition reports are sent um with the items um and obviously it's recommended that these reports stay with the items once they're sold right. whether or not that happens i don't know but i mean my my father is a uh, philatelic expert and um, he works for corin feeler and he um was initially, you know, like every other philatelist and was like, oh, you shouldn't be altering stamps. Oh, that's forgerous. And I said, I'm not altering stamps. I'm repairing envelopes, essentially. Most of it is stain reduction and, um, and, and physical repair. And, uh, you know, he's obviously been swayed, having seen all the before and afters, that, um, you know, I'm not a forger. <laughs> yeah, they're, yeah, they're quite fantastic, the before and afters on your... Um 
uh, on your website there they're they're yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's the before's that the worrying thing, you know. And that's, <laughs> that's, I, mean, that's, I mean, that's only that's only you know collectors that are actually caring for their collections, you know. I mean, I've mm-hmm. obviously gone for a lot of stamp shows in my time, um, working on stands with with my dad, and uh, you know, there's covers shoved in cardboard boxes, and uh, you know, inevitably these things are getting uh, getting damaged, and inevitably they're irreplaceable, so they're going to have to be repaired at some point. Right, right, like all yeah. oh, great. Uh, historical pieces yeah what are the biggest issues that you come across what what is you know is it um humidity is it the plastic sleeves that a cover is stored in what would you say the um most damaging processes are for a cover and what can collectors um you know maybe avoid so they don't have to come to you in the future <laughs> um what what, what, are, what are the biggest red flags that you see when you look at the way somebody stores a collection yeah it's um well it's you know it depends if it's a private collector or a museum, you know, because obviously museums have the humidity and the temperature thing totally under control. And so for them, it's really physical storage that's the issue. Whereas um, for private collectors, a lot of it, you know, a lot of their storage facilities are in attics or, um, you know, damp rooms. So, you know, the libraries are always perfect, but some of the collection areas are, are not so good. And, I, th- I think the main issue is, is physical storage methods. Is is that it's it's poor boxing. It's people not putting their items in in chemically inert polyester sheets. It's uh, yeah, the old PVC albums. They're also an absolute nightmare because the damage that's sustained from them is totally irreversible. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's generally physical storage. It's generally cramming too many items in a box and then it getting torn and ripped. I mean, that's that's the main issue. Um, which is obviously easily overcome um, with 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 good storage boxes and, and 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 plastic sleeves, but then you know that's an expense. So some right. people want to. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean that's the main preach is is that when you when I get when I have to go and you know consult in storage areas, that's that's the main lecture. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you do you do that? You consult with people to to tell them how they should store their collections better. Or? I get asked to go around and look at collections quite a lot. Yeah, hmm. yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, it's quite it's an incredibly niche topic. Right. What I do, you know, it's. Um, I mean, I trained as obviously a paper and book conservator, but it's. Um, you know, my area of interest is obviously incredibly niche. So, um, yeah, I get asked to do a number of random things by my philatelic clients. Yeah. Yeah, well, that was actually going to be one of my next questions was you mentioned your father kind of started you in the hobby, but how did you go down the path of restoring items in comparison to just collecting them or or buying or selling? What made you want to uh, repair things? Well, I was... I've never. I'm not a flatlist at all. I mean, he's mm-hmm. a flatlist. I just. I just had to help him. Yeah. <laughs> I was an artist, and then I was also kind of good at science. So to put the two together, I wanted to do art restoration, and then um, I studied it at, um, for my degree, and then I uh, I did it as a master's, and I um, I just I just ended up enjoying paper and books more than artworks, and and. I enjoyed the, the way the materials worked and the repair processes, etc. So I specialised in that, and obviously a, a very logical jump was to uh, was to just repair philatelic items, considering there were so many available to me. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I, when I got the job at the British Library, my you know interest and knowledge of philatelic material 
then meant that I could obviously work on their collections with a some amount of confidence and um and yeah, I mean, a bit like I, also my. I think I think also what got me interested in it when I had specialised in paper was 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 my my father's obviously my his initial um, absolute naysaying of it. So it really got me frustrated because I was like, well, you know, this is really common in in every single museum all over the world. All items, you know, all paper items are conserved. You know, that's how we was that's how we preserve history you know you're a temporary custodian of these items and it's your job to make sure they're in in good condition and um uh so that initially got me that initially made me write some articles uh, you know for the fakes and forgeries experts magazine and things like that so, you know just just explaining the difference between restoration preservation conservation and, and the terminology of it because obviously you know alteration is manipulation which is forgery which is it is um it's really ill-conceived so that was initially how I got interested in it, and then and then I and then I just and then I just started um, doing all the practical work on it, and, and I got a lot of opportunities, obviously working at Smithsonian and the British Library, and it just advanced from there. So, uh, how long have you been working for the Smithsonian and the British Library? When when did that start? Well, I I am uh, the Smithsonian. I worked for after my university uh, degree, so that was only for a couple of months, well, six months or so. Because um, they only had a short-term contract, because um, they do, they don't have an in-house restorer all the, uh, conservator all the time, so that was a short-term contract. And then I obviously got my job at the British Library. So, I mean, that's been going on for like six six years probably now. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. talking about that that process a little, you mentioned the Smithsonian doesn't have a full-time conservator on staff. Is that typical for museums to to have a full-time a person repairing material that either they've they've come across or does a lot of material yeah. that they already have get damaged in the process of moving it? Or? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, with, like, all museums have in-house, not all, all large-scale museums have in-house conservation teams. So this is, the Smithsonian have a whole conservation centre and, and uh, the National Postal Museum could send stuff to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of the museums have in-house conservators Two in the Smithsonian, but the National Postal Museum didn't. So, uh, but they did have uh, um, preservation staff, which do the displays and the boxing and and you know and uh, a lot of the exhibition work. Um, but um, but most big museums have in-house conservation just because it's so multifaceted. You know, we have to do all of the environmental monitoring, all the pest management, all of the you know repair, all of the exhibitions, all the loans, all the. Um, I mean, it's, there's a lot of work to be done, and you know, and then obviously you have to care of the collection as a massive trade too. So, um, yeah, all big, all big, all big museums do, but all, all small museums tend to, um, yeah, contract the work out to private conservation studios. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's just because of money and funding, and you're applying for grants and things. Yeah, right. You never really think about it like that. Have you ever had to repair the same item twice? For um, yeah, I did. Yeah, I had. Um, I, I was working on a big birch bark book. Um, so it was a, a, a Kashmiri manuscript from, and it was made from birch bark, uh, which is very volatile material, as you can imagine. And um, uh, the bark uh, is grown around a tree in layers, and the layers delaminate over time. And uh, I repaired it all. It took about 250 hours to repair. Now, this is a very, very big project. So, like, a lot of philatelic items take about three hours, three hours whereas, you know, this was a, a huge project. And, um, 
Uh, yeah, it got roughly handled after I'd repaired it um, and opened flat rather than at an angle, you know, with book supports and uh, that had to be re-repaired, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, you know, they're sure they get to be employed, so I don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully it didn't take as long the second time. Mm. You know, no, didn't know. So, um, yeah, I mean, but obviously we, we because we send a lot of items out on loan and exhibition, uh, we're constantly, you know, having to remount and re-put items, but, you know, say big maps, we have to put them back in their their volumes of their books and and then take them out, mount them, you know, and flatten them and, and you know, repair them and then put them, I get, put them, send them out for exhibition and then when they come back in, we obviously have to put them all back into the books. So it's, um, there's a lot of items that we handle a lot. Yeah, I mean, obviously some are in more demand than others. When somebody sends you a cover or a block of stamps, how much of it is routine? How much of it are the same problems, again, whether it's staining or tears that you see over and over? Um, and, and, and how often is it a, a new problem that maybe you've never come across that forces you to think outside the box? How much, you know, again, in terms of philatelic material, is a lot of it just run of the mill? You're doing the same thing to every cover? Every, every, item, every item is different. And that's probably the most interesting thing about the job, actually, is that every single item needs a different way of conserving it because every single item is printed on different types of paper. It sustained different damage. Um, it has different, you know, expansion contraction rates. The way, you know, say if it's got gum on the back, you can only repair it in a certain way because you don't want to disturb the gum. Uh, you know, say it's really stained, um, then all staining is obviously from different sources. So uh, you have to do solubility testing on all the inks. You have to, and you know, um, the type of staining, and the inks and and um, the fragility of the paper will dictate the way that you clean it or it reduce the staining. And you know there are limitations to every treatment. You know if you've got a really beautiful robust rag paper, you can almost do anything on it. And you know you can carry out um, you know all the aqueous treatments you like, and the paper will stay strong. But um, as with um, philatelic material, you know often envelopes are made with very bad quality paper. Uh, stamps normally nice quality paper but obviously incredibly thin and um, inks obviously handwritten inks are very soluble so the methods to use on philatelic covers and items is obviously quite limited um, and it's always a puzzle so I end up using a lot of solvent gels and and methods by which you can localize treatment um, so that you don't have to you know immerse a whole item in, in, a, in a bath, say, um, which obviously wouldn't suit a philatelic cover because the stamp would come off and the ink would run. Um, uh, you know, so you can localise treatment, but you have to get the solvent absolutely right in order for the stain to be lifted out with the gel. Um, so it's, it's a very, very uh, complicated process. And also, you know, a lot of, stamp, a lot of the most common requests is to remove foxing spots. Uh, again, which which is you know can be done quite easily, but the process to do it, you have to then wash it with water. So there's a lot of impeding factors, and every so every treatment process is a total puzzle, and you have to really navigate it carefully because obviously if you damage the item, you're screwed. So um, there's a lot of risk mitigation when it, when coming up with a treatment plan. Yeah. Yeah, not, none of the same. But, I mean, like repair processes with, with Japanese tissue and wheat starch paste, I mean, that's the most basic, and that is quite customary and quite easy. So it's a nice one when I get those to the door. <laughs> <laughs>
Say, say hypothetically you, you receive a stamp that's just missing its corner completely. Uh, would you, how would you go about repairing that? Do you have to find or do you keep specific paper from different issues on hand that you then attach to it? Or do you, can you not even repair that corner? No, I repair the corner, but we repair it with, um, with, you know, archivally safe paper. So mm-hmm. Japanese tissue that I then, with different types, there's a million different types of Japanese tissue. You know, there's some really fine grain, some really... So I basically choose the most suitable type of Japanese tissue and tone it back with a, with a number of um, paints. And then, um, um, and, then I, and then and so I make it look like the stamp. And then I and then I uh, I can do the infill, yeah. Okay. So, but yeah, no, I, I you you would never attach old paper to old like a, like a false a material that didn't come originally with the object to the object because yeah. that again is a really grey area. Mm. So that's kind of misleading. Whereas mm. if you have like a repair paper that obviously looks incredibly similar. That's the, that's how we repair stuff. Is we yeah. use conservation grade materials to repair items. Yeah, yeah, really following a strict code of ethics there. Yeah, no, it is. It is. It, well, it has to be. You know, because yeah. there has to be this. You know, every object is open to interpretation, so there has to be guidelines <laughs> um, because everyone can interpret it differently. Yeah. Sort of a philosophical question, and I guess kind of a depressing question but i think back to some of the early um u.s postmasters provisionals um that that you know you look at an image of them 100 years ago and you look at them today and the ink has faded these things were not um produced to last 100 200 years you know these nobody was thinking about um will somebody put this in a stamp album two centuries from now when they were produced are there things that cannot be preserved are there are there yeah. items that, w- that, that won't exist in a hundred years. Are there yeah, things that absolutely. will just disappear? Yeah, no matter Ameri- what you do or no. It's the Americans that do it as well. It's um, it's it's irradiated mail that you get in uh, in in Washington and well, certain postcodes along America. There's obviously, I mean, I wrote an internal paper for the Smithsonian about this actually, and it's you know, in 2001, you've got the anthrax letters, and then everything started getting irradiated with um, ionizing radiation. It was um, uh, so the, the radiation that they use is five, no, two million, two million times stronger than what we use on X-ray, uh, and that's to denature the bacteria. So, so the anthrax letters that got obviously blitzed, uh, I were, were there when I was at the Smithsonian. And I got to see them and hand. Well, I didn't touch them, but they were there on the desk. <laughs> and uh, you know, they're they're just. The rate that basically they removed eighty percent of the strength of the paper, and um, and they have very little chance of surviving because because of the they've because they've basically been annihilated. Like all the chemical structure is all, like the cellulose is all depolymerized. It's just it's a nightmare. But these are all preserved nicely in a very padded box and obviously handled very gently. So they will stay. They will be preserved. But all irradiated mail. In America, is you know that all goes to the White House, etc. That of documents that could be of you know severe importance in the future, um, you know that you'd want to look at. They have, if they're not preserved correctly now, they have a limited chance of survival. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so they're the ones that are most at risk. But um, I mean, you know, like, there's a lot of um, 
you know, items in the British Library, like papyrus, etc. That was, I mean, that was all disposable. Like most most archival materials were not meant to be preserved for long times. So, you know, it's only lovely leather bindings, etc., that people want to look after and keep well. So, I mean, having disposable materials, uh, you know, and and their preservation quandary is is quite common um, in in our line of work. But um, it's it's whether or not someone can see the importance and then preserve them accurately, you know, preserve them well from now on. That's, yeah. What, what would you say the percentages of uh, work you get from the private sector, if you will, and then versus museums? Oh, I just, I, I, I only get work from private clients. Mm-hmm. This job, I, I, you know, obviously I'm employed at the British Library as well, but I work okay. only with private clients. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I have, I have, I have work in local museums in Hampshire, um, um, but that's that's just paper based. It's not philatelic based. That's just um, yeah, paper repair for their for their collection items like maps and things. So, um, but yeah, I mean that's quite that's just private conservation. So I mean yeah, I work for about three different small museums. Um, but but yeah, I mean all the philatelic work comes from private collectors. Um, huh. Okay. Yeah, and that's really word of mouth. I haven't really had to advertise it. So it's all quite nice <laughs> I mean like the, you know the usual ways of advertising with, you know with um, with websites and things doesn't really apply in the philatelic arena so word of mouth is, <laughs> is the best yeah is it is it mostly people in the UK or is it a lot of American people as well no no uh, a lot of Egyptians oh, okay. a lot of Saudi Arabians um, you know a lot of it's from Twitter and Instagram actually like a lot of hmm. I just put it up you know just I mean, not, not to be honest, I should put up more. I really am not very active with it. Um, but, yeah, I mean, a lot of it is, oh, I've seen you on Twitter. And yeah. get in touch with me. That's, that was the main shock, actually, because I don't really use Twitter. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that was good. Um, but, yeah, no, it's um, yeah, English, uh, Egyptians, Saudi Arabians mainly. There's a few Americans, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, don't, I, I don't really know why, actually. I, I don't know. But that's, yeah. that's, that's the common occurrence, yeah. Would you say that there's one particular uh, area's stamp or or philatelic items that are most difficult to work on? Yeah, there's a lot of it's it's like it's the tropical stamps, you know, the ones from like the Malaysia, Caribbean side, you know, all the ones that have been. As, as they say in flatly tropicalized, which is basically aged really badly. They're really poorly made. They're really, really fine paper. They're really stored badly. You know, the heat and the humidity in that climate. You know, sometimes you get sent items like that and you're meant to magically restore them back to a stable stamp and you're just like, well, this is sawdust, you know. Um, <laughs> they're, like, they're, they're the ones... I, I, don't, I can't say specific issues because, as I said, I'm you know I'm not a philatelic specialist. But I, the ones that are the most damaged are the ones that come from tropical climates, um, and they're the ones that I dread working on the most because obviously if you do, they're so fragile um, and they can't withstand much treatment. So the the way of conserving them is very limited. Yeah. What would you say was the most exciting or most expensive item that you've worked on? 
Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't ask the friends. I don't ask the value. All right, then exciting. The one that I, I know for a fact that a lot, like some of them, they, I, I worked on one that was worth 24 grand last year. That was quite, you know, that was that, that was simple because one, it wasn't gummed, and two, it was just torn in part. In, you know, there was a corner torn off it, so I just had to repair the corner back on it. Mm-hmm. So I was quite happy that it was obviously quite a simple repair process. But I know, I mean, the client did tell me that it was worth 24 grand, and so that was like, mm. Um, but I mean, I'm fully insured and all this, so that's pretty. But you know, like, at the moment, nothing bad has ever happened, so that's good. Um, but um, but yeah, I mean, I don't tend to ask the value of them. I know, you know, obviously, I could tell sometimes when I nice, when like, I've had some Afghan covers before that um, I've shown my dad just because I think the Afghan stamps are really beautiful, and I. Um, and he said they're worth a lot of money. So when he says that, I mean it means a lot, a lot, not a lot, but in my in, in my perspective. <laughs> so I don't know, you know. But um, yeah, I mean, I, like, I don't know. Like at, at the British Library, you know, you're you're used to working at on you know irreplaceable, unique items all the time. Right. So the way you repair them it has zero to do with their, their monetary value. You have to treat every single item the same. So. Um, you know, every item is treated with the same amount of care. So, yeah, the monetary value doesn't necessarily mean anything. <laughs> and do you work with the team, or are you just uh, oh, it's individual? Just yeah. It's just me here. Um, yeah, obviously, I work with a big team in museums, but I right. you know, um, no, it's just me. I mean, it's lovely, really, because I have a studio here, um, and philatelic items are often small so I have the capacity to repair them um, whereas obviously at the British Library we're working on huge maps and huge processes and things and um, I mean I could, I could repair them here but you know it's quite nice working for the because it keeps it neat and, and small <laughs> and uh, you know yeah yeah I didn't have to store like big aqueous baths of uh, you know to, to, to repair mats I, I can now have just like little trays and yeah so I much prefer working small to be honest. Like, I really like the minutiae and working under magnification. It's, it's, you know, I, I get quite, it's, it's quite um, adrenaline rush because it's so tiny. It's, yeah. it's quite addictive to me. <laughs> How much have conservation and restoration methods changed? Because we've had things in in our auctions that were restored a hundred years ago. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I, I assume the science and technology has uh, advanced a lot. And do you yeah. find that maybe things that were restored a hundred years ago they were doing more long term damage than good? Maybe it looked nice at the time, but the methods they were using, I'm sure, must have been restored with a heavy hinge. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, a lot of the work that we carry out at the British Library is, is undoing the seventies, <laughs> the seventies heavy-handed conservation, and and we you know what they did was do a lot of rebinding, a lot of, a lot of you know, luckily they're not that much laminated, but you know, bad storage and PVC and and bad storage materials and you know, like heavy tapes. Um, which, you know, if you've got fragile paper and use a heavy tape on it, then it's obviously going to contract and expand and it's going to crease and it's going to tear. And so a lot of the, and yeah, sellotapes, yeah, a lot of the work that we do is undoing that. So, yeah, I mean, it's huge. Like what happened really was in 1978, I think it was, there was the Florence floods and there was basically a a massive national outcry of conservation needed and that it was then that um, 
the real laws of conservation were written because obviously they had to be restored back to a standard. And, you know, in places like Spain where they're still hacking up sculptures, you know, I mean, those those guidelines aren't necessarily kept to all the time. But... Um, but there is these guidelines and, you know, like places like Italy and America and England, it's a very, they're very, very strict. And uh, and it was from then, to, you know, that research went into it and and, and conservation methods started developing. And, um, I mean, it must be the last 20 years that it's really gone very minimal. There's a whole, there's two key words. It's, it's kind of minimal intervention. So basically there's the whole main ethos of, doing as little as possible to stabilise the item as much as possible. Um, uh, so you just you just don't add on loads of extra material, you don't change the format. I mean, at the British Library, there was loads of beautiful old Chinese bindings that, that were then bound into Western bindings, you know, and so it's, it's totally hmm. <laughs> jarring. So a lot of it is taking apart the old Western bindings and restoring it back to its original, uh, what it was meant to be. Um, but putting it back into original Chinese binding style to make it kind of, to restore the historical integrity of it. So it's, yeah, it's all about keeping the integrity of the object whilst doing it as little as possible. Um, yeah. But obviously you have to know everything about the molecular level and chemistry and material qualities of the paper to, to be able to do as little as possible whilst achieving as much as possible. It's, 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 it's yeah, it's quite complicated. All objects are complicated. Yeah. Yeah. But you mentioned the the tape. I've seen a lot of collections that have had the the Scot the old Scotch tape, and they taped that to the to the mounts, and then but it seeped through onto the stamp. Is that still something yeah. that's repairable, or no? Well, it depends on the stamp. If it's soaked it into the fiber, it depends on the type of tape. It depends how much, really, because there's some. <laughs> if the stamp, if it's been, if it's been repaired from both sides with tape, right? <laughs> the, the, it, the adhesive is seeped through and mm-hmm. sometimes the paper will go translucent in the middle. And, you know, in that respect, no, it can never be saved because basically the structure of the stamp is now glue. But there's a lot of times where you can remove the carrier of the tape and then gently remove the adhesive off it using the right solvents. And we have to do that. That's a really common um, common thing that I have to do here and generally the carrier of the tape is removed with a heated spatula and um, and then and then you can remove the glue in it but the problem is is that not all sellotapes are made with the same glues and that's the, all the solvents are different and the problem is is that if you're applying solvents then some inks are susceptible to some solvents so well whether it's possible or whether it's not you know it depends on the stamp but yes it is on on more robust paper it is more possible so on on envelopes and things like that, it's really really possible, um, but obviously it depends. Yeah. So say something. Say you get something that, uh, and I, I I know I keep throwing out these hypothetical questions, but have you ever had to remove the gum of a stamp to help preserve the integrity of a stamp? Yeah, this is a big question. This was in. Uh, I got asked this. I've never done it. I've mm-hmm. never done it because the the gum is as integral to the stamp as the paper is uh, but this is a, that was a big question that they did they had to ask when when setting up the National Postal Museum because obviously the gum is the thing that is the most volatile and the most susceptible to heat and temperature and obviously can tear the stamp mm-hmm. but if you think of the stamp as a stratified structure of glue paper ink 
all three are as vital component parts as the other. So the gum has to be preserved. So it comes down to effective storage rather than gum removal. Well, when you were talking about the the scotch tape on the yeah. stamps, the funny thing that came to mind is that the Arthur Hind collection, he was one of the big collectors in the first half of the 20th century. His collection was sold in the 30s. Um, he was awful, took a cover and applied a piece of tape to either side of the cover. And it's funny because seeing that residue today identifies it as having come from his collection. Huh. And it actually speaks, it, it bodes very well for the cover's provenance that he owned it. So even though he was... Um, effectively ruining the covers in a weird way. It's a nice mark of authenticity yeah. and good provenance. So um, that, when you talk about people taping covers, I, I suppose that was very common for the first yeah, no, I mean, it, of this hobby. Yeah. It, it still is common. I mean, people still do it, you know? <laughs> I mean, it can't, you know, it, 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 people seem to think that conservation is going to cost them a fortune, which it doesn't. Um, you know, it only costs a fortune if you're wanting loads of you know, stain reduction and things like that. And a fortune is, is not a fortune in their book anyway. It's, it's, uh, anyway, but see, yeah, so people just think conservation is going to cost a fortune and I'll just whack some tape on it and then it just becomes un unsellable and highly damaged and it just, there's no logic to it. But, um, but yeah, I mean, there's, this is the thing, you know, with conservation. So, so items like, there's, there's, say, you know, you've got a rusty Victorian baking tray and it's still got food residue on it the food residue is acidic so it's, it's da damaging the tray but then the food residue is kept on it because obviously it adds to the historical integrity and provenance of the item so it would be up to the client to tell me whether they would like it removed you know so if you said that tape is really important to the provenance of this item i would obviously not remove it and you'd you know yeah, it's, uh, it's, that would be up to you, yeah, because you would be the, you know, the curator deciding this, yeah. And, and when, when you talk about people assume this is expensive, people assume this is going to cost an arm and a leg, it seems like, you know, uh, it's really much smarter to lay out a little bit of money up front. To, it's almost like preventative health care, I would say, mm -hmm. where you, you make the right decisions now. Um, yeah. Yeah, you, yeah, maybe the sleeves that you put the covers in are a bit more expensive or the, the sheet protectors for your exhibit. Um, but that prevents you from having to lay out a lot of money to undo the damages. It, it, it seems like, like you know, your work is as much educating people about preventative measures as it is fixing yeah, mistakes think, that have already been made. Yeah, I mean, I didn't start this. You know, David Beach at the British Library started it all. You know, I mean, he was the one that started lecturing people on preservation. And, you know, it's it's, it's totally valid. Because, yeah, if you, you know, the initial outlay of, um, yeah, of good storage materials is, is going to save you a hell of a lot of money in the future, especially if you obviously, especially, well, especially if you've got an incredibly expensive collection, if you've got a gold medal collection, then these items need to be stored, pro you know, properly. And, um uh, you know, and conservation, yeah, costs more than storage. It does, but um, yeah, I mean, it's just yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Sure, the least, the, yeah, you're going to save money if you store your items correctly. But yeah, I mean, conservation—it's it, it's the same amount as you know, as getting a carpenter to repair a door. I mean, it's it's the same, it's the yeah. same cost really. I mean, it's you know, it's a trade at the end of the day. Um, I think people just get terrified and think oh no i'll just leave it and then it just gets worse yes <laughs> you mentioned your twitter and instagram where can people find examples of your work if somebody you know uh, wants to go and see what it is you do visually where can they find you yeah so i'm on uh, i've got a website it's called the stamprestorer.com 
um, and that's got some of my work on it. Um, and then, yeah, and then and then obviously on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. Um, but yeah, I mean, I get yeah, I mean, most of my work comes through my website really, and then um, sometimes I get phone calls and I send through. Um, items like before and after photos of items that are similar to the items that they send me you know they send me scans and then you know I look at it and I say oh you know this is similar and if they hadn't seen my website um and you know it's, it's a discussion process really at the beginning it's, it's a total discussion of what I'm what I'm able to do for them and what they would like done for the stamp and you know it's a negotiation process before any work carried out so yeah I mean yeah I mean people do I just direct people to my website really yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, uh, this has been super informative. Thank you so much for for joining us. I, I didn't know a lot of this stuff, and, and and it's good to let people know that they're in safe hands with the with the code of ethics and everything. And, and I was going to say, hopefully, remove some of that taboo. You mentioned your yeah. father was initially skeptical, and he came around on it. So I, I think that um, you know, no, maybe there's, there's a lot. Now, I've been. This has gone on for years. You know, I'm a member of the Royal Philatelic <laughs> Society, so. You know, generally, I have. Um, I've been. To, yeah, there's a quite a lot of people in the Royal Philatelic Society now in London that have uh, heard me, and you know, do um, uh, take the advice. So, I mean, it's, it's it's definitely not falling on deaf ears, certainly. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, well, it's, it's a great place for people who want to preserve things in their collections that they wish had just looked a little better. Yeah, it, yeah know, there's, a, there's a lot of staining. You know, stuff's all badly stored, and then you know, you've got wax on them and you've got loads of brown staining mm-hmm. you know that stuff can be removed really easily and then you've got beautiful items again you know there was a cover that I did for Chris King and it had loads and loads of foxing spots the whole way across it and was worth zero and then I um, you know I chelated I did a chelation wash bath with them and removed the spots and mm-hmm. um, and you know the cover is now worth quite a lot and uh, he was very happy about it so I mean you know that it's it's quite I think it's quite easy to, to sway people um once once they see the effect you can have yeah because yeah. <laughs> he was a skeptic but now he's not so that's good <laughs> yeah because it is a visu- visual visual hobby when you're looking at something that doesn't look nice and it's you know artwork, you can yeah. yeah exactly yeah it's artwork and it's you know had, like had, like making stuff look 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 nicer whilst preserving it is mm-hmm. I mean it's it's logic I mean there's you know there's nothing yeah. wrong with doing that so, I mean it, you know it's what we do on all books and all artwork all over the world so yeah. um, it's just it's just it's just a mindset thing and frankly it is changing so um, yeah I mean it's fine by me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much uh, for for joining us and talking to us and taking the time out. I'm sure you're incredibly busy with all the the stuff that not many people can take their their work home, but it sounds like that's the only yeah. place you can take. Yeah, it. <laughs> yeah. I know this. Uh, all the furlough has been really great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've had time to do it. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, thanks. Yeah. No, it's really nice to talk to you. Yeah. Great. Well. Um, Thanks for joining us and, and best of luck and we'll we'll put all of your your links in the description for this for this episode and this has been this has been really great. Oh thank you. Well keep me in mind. Yeah. Absolutely. If you have any more questions, comment you know, come chat me. It's no bother. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All we right, appreciate then. it very much. Thank you. No problem at all. All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye. So Michael, did you learn as much as you thought you were going to? Because I certainly did. Yeah, absolutely. I, I learned so much about the ethics. I didn't know that they had to 
uniformly abide by this code. It's like the Hippocratic Oath that doctors yeah. take. It's like there's there's this whole set of, you know, what she can do, what she can't do. Um, I love that because that gives me a lot more confidence, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the work and in that, you know, there are there are good people doing this job for very legitimate reasons, not right. to deceive, not to artificially increase the value of something, but simply to make sure that these things even exist for future generations. Right. And the fact that she doesn't even ask people what the value of an item is, she's not looking to... It doesn't matter if it's a $10 item or a $10,000 item. It's about doing right by the object in front of her. You know, she's yes. not going to treat a, a, a expensive item differently than maybe it's just somebody's favorite cover and it's not worth anything, but they want it taken right. care of. I like that, that that doesn't factor into her work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it And learning a lot about the way that museums preserve items, they... they trade them and then they have to conserve them afterwards and and it's something that i didn't know of before and it, it's you know? interesting to know and you don't think you know you go to yeah, washington dc and look at the constitution or the declaration of independence and you rarely think about what goes into not making it look better but just making right. it look the same right. just keeping it um, because it, it sounds like it's crazy it, that's that sounds like it's almost 50 percent of her job is just she said protecting it from mites telling people how to store their items giving and, them advice and on undoing what other people did i found that very yes. amusing that yeah, so yeah. much you know again things are going to happen naturally but so much of her work is caused by i don't want to say carelessness because a lot of it was probably well-intentioned right decades ago but um it, it's amazing how much work uh conservationists created for themselves not <laughs> daisy specifically but but past right. generations right yeah and um the the fact that, that they document everything before she touches it she documents what it looked like after she fixes it she documents it and then she gives them uh, almost a certificate of authenticity for the yeah a whole report on what it is she's done i think it's right. amazing that there's so much um oversight and so much care put into it so i I thought this was fantastic and i I, i'm i'm really glad we were able to speak to her yeah i I hope it 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 informs a lot of people and i and i hope a lot of people who have items that need to be conserved consider sending them in or consider and 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 you know again if if it if it needs to be conserved absolutely maybe it'll you know encourage some people to just take better care of what they have too yeah um you know, don't don't let it don't let it get to that point. Just let's let's save these things while we can. Yeah, it's funny that half of her job is preventing her from doing work in the future. <laughs> she should tell people to put things in <laughs> yeah. these uh, super acidic, yeah. uh, volatile sleeves so that she, um, you know, ensures a, a long career in the hospital. Well, no, I'm mean, sure there's it, it, I'm sure there's more than enough stuff for her to work on for many lifetimes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So to anybody listening, we are on all the podcast platforms. I'm yep. do I have to go through these every uh, – you know, I, I think we're fine. Thing. Yeah, I, Apple Podcasts, oh. Spotify Podcasts, Google, Podbean. I'm getting quicker. Uh, website, flatlypodcast.com. Flatlypodcast at gmail.com. Exactly. Uh, please reach out to us. Tell us if you enjoyed uh, stories like Daisy's. I think that these non-philatelists who are connected to the philatelic world are very interesting. She's not a collector. She doesn't – pretend to be a collector but she's still an integral part of the hobby that we all know and love or Mm -hmm. for us it's less of a hobby and more of a uh sentence (laughs) (laughs) um but 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 again i i think that you know conversations with philatelists is almost misleading in a way uh these aren't 
See, when you thought of that name. No, but she's not a philatelist, but she's integral to philately. And I think mm-hmm. that's just as important to remember. So yeah. um, let us know if you want to hear from more people like her. Let us know. I don't let us know if you didn't like the episode. Uh, <laughs> no, well, I mean, a couple of people have reached out and said, well, you should interview that person again. So um, people do it. Let us know if you. Yeah, please let us know what you think. From- yeah. And our next guest, we'll keep it a surprise. Uh, no, no, we can, we can say it. Can we, we mention yeah, Gordon we can, Eubanks? We can mention Gordon Eubanks. He's the yeah. opposite end of the spectrum. He is as much a philatelist as anyone. He is... Um, yeah, he's won two we'll champion of champions. Uh, I was going to say, we'll, we'll go into his resume before right. we talk to him, because I don't even know where to begin talking about Gordon Eubanks. <laughs> um, the, the, the model collector the uh epitome of a philatelist in the year 2020 so um i love that we can go from talking to somebody who's not a philatelist but is integral to the hobby to somebody who is the very definition quintessential philatelist quintessential philatelist so i I think well you've said in in episodes before you feel like you're getting whiplash with all these interviews the, the different directions that they're all i'm just glad daisy didn't take any shots at the u.n postal administration Yeah, um, this was a lot of fun, Michael. I, I'm looking forward to talking to Gordon, and uh, I, I think this was a, a really fantastic conversation. All right, until next time, Charles. Until uh, next time, we'll talk real soon, Michael. Yeah, see you then.